Welcome to the Paranormal Factor Podcast. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Thanks for stopping by. This is the place to explore mysteries, investigate the otherworldly, and share stories of the inexplicable and the strange. You see, within the realm of our daily, ordinary lives, there is a paranormal factor always waiting to reveal itself. So let's begin exploring together the truly weird. Welcome listeners and thanks for stopping by. I'm glad you could join me and listen to this new episode where we encounter one of the all-time great UFO cases. Remarkably, it was the rare case of a UFO appearing multiple times over multiple weeks. The main eyewitnesses were impeccable scientists and college professors. And even today, there's still an air of mystery, even from official investigators, regarding what it was that was seen in the Texas skies. The time is August 1951. The place is Lubbock, Texas. Now, on to our episode. In Project Blue Book, the prominent study of UFOs by the United States Air Force, the sightings known as the Lubbock Lights are one of the most famous and extraordinary cases in the annals of UFO reports. The first reported sightings occurred in the evening when a group of Texas Tech University professors gathered at one of their homes for a casual get-together. The lights themselves were observed flying in organized formations comprised of dozens of lights. They were observed by hundreds of eyewitnesses in and around Lubbock, Texas in both August and September of 1951. Around 9.20 p.m. it happened. The gathering of four local professors resulted in them seeing about 15 to 30 bluish-green lights fly over them. The lights were moving at incredible speeds and appeared very bright. With such meticulous witnesses, this event would prove to be a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for a serious and scientific study of a major UFO event at the time of occurrence. So, the Lubbock Lights case is among the very best UFO examinations out there, and it all starts with those four professors. Let's hear their story in detail. When four college professors, a geologist, a chemist, a physicist, and a petroleum engineer report seeing the same UFO on 14 different occasions, the event can be considered unusual, but maybe astonishing would be a better word. Investigators of the case later stated, if a group had been hand-picked to observe a UFO, we could not have picked a more technically qualified group of people. The men were from nearby Texas Tech University. Dr. W.I. Robinson, Professor of Geology. Dr. A.G. Oberg, Professor of Chemical Engineering. Professor W.L. Ducker, Head of the Petroleum Engineering Department. And Dr. George, Professor of Physics. This is their story. On the evening of August the 25th, 1951, at about 9 p.m., the four men were sitting in Dr. Robinson's backyard. They were discussing micrometeorites and drinking tea. At 9.20 p.m., a formation of lights streaked across the sky directly over their heads. It all happened so fast that none of them had a chance to get a good look. One of the men mentioned he had always admonished his students for not being more observant. Now, he was in the very same spot. He and his colleagues realized they could remember only a few details of what they had seen. The lights were a peculiar bluish-green color and they were in a semicircular formation. 
One of the four Texas Tech professors, William Ducker, was interviewed by Meredith McLean in July of 1980. It traveled very, very rapidly, and so we were all rather dumbfounded. And then we began to discuss it in scientific detail, and no one had had the presence of mind to make any meaningful observation except just look open-mouthed at it, Ducker said in the interview. They established they were from 15 to 30 separate lights, and they were moving from north to south. Their one wish at the time was that the lights would reappear. They did. About an hour later, the lights went over again. This time, the professors were a little better prepared. With the initial shock worn off, they had time to get a better look. The details they had remembered from the first flight checked out. There was one difference. In this flight, the lights were not in any orderly formation. They were just in a group. The professors reasoned that if the UFOs appeared twice, uh, well, they might come back again. And again, they did. And they came back the next night. After alerting local papers like the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, the Texas Tech professors started their own informal investigation. In the weeks after their initial August 25th sightings, they and their friends observed the lights 12 more times during the next few weeks. For these later sightings, they added two more people to their observing team. Being methodical, they made every attempt to get a good set of data. They measured the angle through which the objects traveled and timed them. The several flights they checked traveled through 90 degrees of sky in 3 seconds, or 30 degrees per second. The lights usually suddenly appeared 45 degrees above the northern horizon and abruptly went out 45 degrees above the southern horizon. They always traveled in the north to south direction. Outside of the first flight, in which the objects were in a roughly semicircle formation, in none of the rest of the flights did they note any regular pattern. Two or three flights were often seen in one night. They had tried to measure the altitude with no success. First, they tried to compare the lights to the height of clouds, but the clouds were never near enough to the lights. Next, they tried a more elaborate plan. They measured off a baseline perpendicular to the object's usual flight path. Friends of the professors made up two teams. Each of the two teams was equipped with elevation measuring devices, and one team was stationed at each end of the baseline. The two teams were linked together by two-way radios. If they sighted the objects, they would track and time them accordingly getting the speed and the altitude. Unfortunately, neither team ever saw the lights. Strangely, the lights never seemed to want to run the baseline. So they had measured two things, how much of the sky the objects had crossed in a certain time and the angle from one side of the formation to the other. These figures didn't mean a great deal, however, since the altitude at which the formation of lights was flying was unknown. But if you assumed that the objects were flying at an altitude of 10,000 feet, you could easily compute they were traveling a stunning 3,600 miles per hour, or five to six times the speed of sound. And remember, folks, this was in 1951. The formation would have been about 1,750 feet wide. If each light was a separate object, it could have been in the neighborhood of 100 feet in diameter. Now, these figures were only a guess, since nobody knew if the lights were at above or below 10,000 feet. If they had been higher, they would have been going faster and would have been larger. If lower than 10,000 feet, slower and smaller. The group of Texas Tech professors contacted the Air Force about the sightings because they were confident what they saw were no meteors. We're talking about professional people who apparently were impressed enough by having seen strange things in the sky to go and try to observe them under scientific 
conditions, said Donald Burleson, a retired professor from Roswell, New Mexico. As the days went on, more and more Lubbock residents also claimed to have seen the lights. And when the professors cross-checked these reports against what they themselves had seen and recorded, many of the facts aligned. Of course, few if any had recorded the phenomena with the same level of detail as the professors, but Carl Hart Jr., a Texas Tech student, a freshman at the time, took photos of the lights that made national news. More on his story in a bit. Even though many observers offered incomplete or poorly expressed recollections, there's little doubt whatsoever that people were seeing something in the sky. UFO sightings are usually one-off events, but these blue-green lights were observed multiple times by hundreds of people. And while perhaps not carrying the impressive resumes of the four professors, they still were seeing strange things in the skies over Lubbock. Early on the morning of August 26th, only a few hours after the first Lubbock sightings, two different radars had shown a target traveling 900 miles per hour at 13,000 feet on a northwesterly heading. The target had been observed for six minutes and an F-86 jet interceptor had been scrambled, but by the time the jet had climbed into the air, the target was gone. The last paragraph in the submitted report was apparently in anticipation of comments the report might draw. It said that the target was not caused by weather. The officer in charge of the radar station and several members of his crew had been operating radar for seven years, and they could recognize a weather target. This target was real. All the stories about the UFOs were the same. Various types of formations of dull bluish-green lights and generally moving north to south. Two witnesses, tower operators at an airport, reported that they had seen the lights on several occasions. Local resident Pat Allgood maintained until the day she died that she saw the lights in the sky that night. She was watching a movie at the local drive-in theater sitting in the back of a top-down convertible. All of a sudden, my date and I saw these lights coming over the screen, she said. It was just a formation of lights about the size of or maybe a little bit smaller than a frisbee. Six really bright lights came and they were moving, she told KAMC News in an interview prior to her death in 2013. What they were, who knows? There are a lot of things you see that you don't know what they are. According to UFO author Jerome Clark, three women in Lubbock reported that they had observed peculiar flashing lights in the sky on the same night as the professor's sightings as well as Carl Heminger, a professor of German at Texas Tech. We would go out in the evening and make a pallet like a quilt out in the yard and watch stars and, you know, planets and all that, and these things came over, this V-shape of lights, which I didn't know anything about at the time, Lubbock resident Andy Wilkinson said. I was too little. The claims were probable enough that they eventually drew attention from the Air Force, Monty Monroe Southwest Special Collections Library Archivist said. Major Edward Ruppelt, led an investigation into the incident as part of Project Grudge, which later was changed to Project Blue Book, an Air Force study cataloging sightings of potential UFOs. Monroe said Ruppelt was particularly swayed by the testimony of a couple from Albuquerque, New Mexico. They had reported seeing a group of unknown lights. This guy worked for Sandia Labs, and he had the highest security rating, so he was legitimate, and when they showed him the pictures taken by that Texas Tech student, and didn't tell him where it came from, he said, yeah, that's it, Monroe said. That's exactly what we saw. 
And what about those photos by Carl Hart Jr.? Well, Carl Hart Jr. was a freshman at Texas Tech. His story happened on the night of August 31st as he was lying in his bed in an upstairs room of the Hart home. He, like everybody else in Lubbock, had heard about the lights, but he had never seen them. It was a warm night, and his bed was pushed over next to an open window. He was looking out at the clear night sky and had been in bed about a half hour when he saw a formation of lights appear in the north, cross an open patch of sky, and disappear over his house. Knowing the lights might reappear as they had in past reports, he grabbed his Kodak 35, set the lens and shutter at f-stop 3.5 with one-tenth of a second exposure time, and went out into the middle of the backyard. I grabbed my camera and I set the exposure where I wanted it, and I went back outside and waited, said Hart. Before long, his wait was rewarded when the lights made a second pass. He got two pictures. A third formation went over a few minutes later, and he got three more pictures. The next morning, Hart took the roll of unexposed film to a friend who ran a photo finishing shop. He told the friend about the pictures, and they quickly developed them. The lights had appeared to be so dim, he was sure he didn't have anything on the negatives. Had he thought that he did have some good pictures, he would have awakened his friend to develop the negatives right away, he said. Hart processed his images and took them to the Lubbock Avalanche Journal. The newspaper was hesitant to publish them at first, even threatening Hart if he was perpetuating any kind of a hoax. But eventually, they did publish the photos. The photos caused quite a stir, even drawing national attention. Once the photos came out, Hart was put under intense scrutiny. First, by the U.S. Air Force, who questioned him for hours and accused him of faking the photos. After the Air Force came the FBI, who grilled Hart for several hours and also accused him of a hoax. They went over and over my story to, I guess, try to catch me being inconsistent, but apparently they were satisfied eventually, said Hart. Federal investigators eventually realized Hart's images were unedited. Declassified documents reveal they contacted nearby military installations like Reese Air Force Base to confirm if the lights were military aircraft or missiles. Air Force officials confirmed the lights were neither. Hart's photos could not be shown to be fakes. They have been examined and studied for years and are still considered some of the most remarkable, compelling, and factual UFO photos ever taken. Incredibly, his series of photos of the same group of lights shows indisputably that the objects were moving and changing position in their formation. And there were other unusual objects seen around the same time. On August the 31st, two ladies, a mother and her daughter, had left their home in Matador, Texas, 70 miles northeast of Lubbock at about 12.30 p.m. They were driving along in their car when they suddenly noticed a pear-shaped object about 150 yards ahead of them. It was just off the side of the road, about 120 feet in the air. It was drifting slowly to the east, less than the speed required to take off in a small airplane, they noted. They drove on down the road about 50 more yards, stopped and got out of the car. The object, which they estimated to be the size of a B-29 fuselage, an astonishing 99 feet in length, was still drifting along slowly. There was no sign of any exhaust blast, and they heard no noise, but they did see a porthole in the side of the object. In a few seconds, the object began to pick up speed and rapidly climb out of sight. As it climbed, it seemed to have a tight spiraling motion. A subsequent investigation concluded the two women were solid citizens with absolutely no history of dishonesty or reasons for fabricating such a story. 
The daughter was fairly familiar with aircraft. Her husband was an Air Force officer then in Korea, and she had been living near air bases for several years. The women said the object was drifting to the east, which possibly indicated that it was moving with the wind, but on further investigation, it was found that it was actually moving into the wind. The same night the college professors had seen their formation of lights, a Lubbock rancher's wife had seen something too. Soon after dark, she had gone outdoors to take some sheets off the clothesline. The rancher was inside the house reading the paper. Suddenly, his wife rushed into the house, as he told the story, as white as the sheets she was carrying. As close as he could remember, he said, this was about ten minutes before the professors made their first sighting. He noted his wife was not prone to making up stories. The reason his wife was so upset was that she had seen a large object glide swiftly and silently over the house. She said it looked like an airplane without a body. On the back edge of the wing were pairs of glowing bluish lights. So what could these mysterious lights possibly be? Well, the Air Force was certain it had the answer. And while not quite as absurd as swamp gas, it would still create an uproar be disputed, and promote cries of a conspiracy and cover-up, or at the very least, a government effort to whitewash the truth. In declassified military documents obtained by EverythingLubbock.com, both the professors and Carl Hart Jr. were interrogated multiple times about the sightings as part of the U.S. government's Project Grudge investigation, again, later changed to Project Blue Book. Shortly after, Ed Ruppel, leader of the Project Grudge investigation, determined the lights were plover-like birds that had reflected light from Lubbock's newly installed streetlights. While plovers are wading shorebirds found around water, they are migratory and in the United States make north to south and back again seasonal migration flights. The Air Force explained the Lubbock sightings then by claiming these migratory birds were responsible. After over 70 years, the U.S. Air Force has not revised its plover-like theory about the Lubbock Lights. Often in the popular culture, the phrase UFO has been associated with aliens, but it really just stands for unidentified flying object, said Texas Tech professor Thomas Macaron. Many types of unidentified flying objects are things that are just normal, natural phenomena, but we don't understand what they are well enough based on the kinds of observations we have of them. In his 1956 book, The Report on Unidentified Flying Objects, Ruppelt amended his initial assessment and wrote, They were not birds, refracted light, or spaceships. They were positively identified as a very commonplace and easily explainable natural phenomenon. However, he further stated, rather cryptically, that to protect the source of the information, he could not disclose the cause of the lights. That seems rather convenient. And what of Carl Hart Jr.'s photos? Ruppelt was quick to release a written statement to the press that the Hart photos were never proven to be a hoax, but neither were they proven to be genuine. This incident was the beginning of what is known today as the Lubbock Lights, one of history's most famous UFO cases, Andy Wilkinson of the Southwest Special Collections Library said. It's one of the handful of UFO sightings as of today that hasn't been fully explained or fully discounted, Wilkinson said. It's one of the ones that goes, well, we don't know everything about it. And what of the bird theory? Many believe this theory to be false and a cover-up by the Air Force. In an interview, Professor Ducker said, while it is conceivable the birds could reflect light, 
it was unlikely that they were flying with the same regularity that the lights were appearing. It was primarily related to, or perhaps totally, on the time regularity that we wrote off the bird hypothesis. J.C. Cross, the head of Texas Tech's biology department, and another individual who was the federal game warden at that time, were both interviewed by Ruppelt and both claimed the sightings could not have been birds. According to the declassified documents, investigators met with the federal game warden to discuss their plover-like bird theory. He doubted the lights were birds because plovers were not prevalent in the Lubbock area at that time of year. Local biology experts said the objects were too big to be birds. Texas Tech professor Grayson Mead, who had observed the lights, also disputed the plover explanation. These objects were too large for any bird. I have had enough experience hunting, and I don't know of any bird that could go this fast we would not be able to hear. To have gone as fast as this to be birds, they would have to have been exceedingly low to disappear quite so quickly. William Hams, chief photographer for the Lubbock Avalanche Journal, took several nighttime photos of birds flying over Lubbock's streetlights and could not duplicate Hart's photos. There were lots of other speculation about what the lights were, Monty Monroe, Southwest Special Collections Library Archivist said. Some believed the story about the plovers, some thought it was a government experiment, and some believed the lights were UFOs. Naturally, there was much discussion among the professors and their friends as to the nature of the lights. The possibility that they were some natural phenomena was discussed and seriously considered. The professors did a lot of thinking and research and decided that if they were natural phenomena, they were something altogether new. I have heard people say they believed it 100%, that they saw them, that they believed that what they saw were some kind of UFO, Monroe said. And there were probably an equal amount of people that believed that it was probably the bird story or experimental aircraft. While some have put forth the theory the lights were from a government aircraft, no known aircraft at the time fit the description. The Air Force Flying Wing is sometimes mentioned, but the Flying Wing bomber program was canceled in January 1949, following years of technical problems and complex political bickering. And although the Air Force did allow Northrop to continue work on one flying wing, the YRB-49A, which was to be a test platform for reconnaissance equipment, testing on that aircraft ended after only 13 flights. Dr. George, after moving on from Texas Tech, studied the phenomena of the night sky during his years as a professor at the University of Alaska, and he had never seen or heard of anything like this before or after. The fact it was professors and scientists who reported on the incident first made the accounts even more significant, Professor Ducker said. It helped the story make national headlines. I mean, we were judged to be the most competent because here were four professors of the science faculties all reporting this, which gave it a tremendous status, Ducker said. And so that was the advent of the thing. There were just enough credible stories that can't be debunked, and they're from people like airline pilots and university professors and people who have seen them, and there's not an explanation for them, Andy Wilkinson said. So I think a rational person has to say there's some phenomena or a set of phenomena out there we cannot identify. And even today, the Lubbock Lights remain one of the best documented cases with exceptionally qualified eyewitnesses in all of ufology. What were the lights? UFOs? Birds? A secret government aircraft? Well, we still 
don't know. It's still a mystery. In episode 18 of this year, we gave you a very spooky look into the entities known as shadow people. If you haven't listened to it yet, you might want to check it out. But next week, we investigate a very specific and very terrifying type of shadow person, the infamous and insidious hat man. While any shadow being is eerie and can frighten even the bravest among us, for the most part, they seem to do no real harm nor provoke a heightened sense of dread. But the hat man is an altogether different kind of being. Those who have encountered the hat man speak of the overwhelming feelings of malevolence radiating from his presence. This being is said to be the manifestation of sheer evil. He is the last shadow being you want to encounter and is not to be trifled with. This is scary territory, folks, so we best stay together as we learn the hat man's origins, discover what makes him different from other shadow beings, and of course, delve into real encounters that will make you hope you never cross paths with the hat man. Next time on the Paranormal Factor Podcast. And now it's time for the episode quiz. Yes, indeed, it is time for the quiz, so let's get to it. The original Twilight Zone TV show was created by what legendary writer? Was it A. John Steinbeck, B. Rod Serling, C. Stephen King, or D. Anne Rice? Once again, the original Twilight Zone TV show was created by what legendary writer? Was it John Steinbeck, Rod Serling, Stephen King, or Anne Rice? And the answer is... B. Rod Serling. Rod Serling was an American screenwriter, playwright, television producer, and narrator on-screen host, best known for his live television dramas of the 1950s and, of course, his anthology television series, The Twilight Zone. Serling served with distinction during World War II in the Pacific, and many of his later stories had themes of wartime affected by his own experiences during the war. Starting as a writer for numerous radio shows in the 1940s, he quickly moved on to early television. He famously wrote the critically acclaimed Requiem for a Heavyweight for the television series Playhouse 90 in 1956. But it was on October the 2nd, 1959, that the Twilight Zone series which would make Serling famous, premiered on CBS. Serling fought hard to get and maintain creative control for the series. He drew on his own experience for many episodes, frequently about boxing, military life, and airplane pilots. The Twilight Zone also incorporated his social views on racial relations, gender roles, and other societal concerns, somewhat disguised in the science fiction and fantasy elements of the shows. And many of the shows had a paranormal aspect with episodes on UFOs, aliens, and strange creatures. The Twilight Zone aired for five seasons and won many television and drama awards and drew critical praise for Serling and his co-workers. Although it had loyal fans, The Twilight Zone had only moderate ratings and was twice canceled and revived. After five years and 156 episodes, 92 of which were written by Serling himself, he grew tired of the series. In 1964, he decided not to oppose its third and final cancellation. The show would go on to achieve cult status, and it spawned a 1983 movie, and it's still shown yearly, usually as a marathon 
of all its episodes. Serling also had a hit with Night Gallery on NBC, which ran from 1969 to 1973. And later in life, he taught college writing and drama classes. However, a three to four pack a day smoker for most of his life, he suffered three heart attacks in the span of just two weeks and passed away in 1975 at the age of only 50. But his superlative writing and legacy go on in the form of The Twilight Zone, nearly 63 years after its debut. He once said, Fantasy is the impossible made probable. Science fiction is the improbable made possible. Rod Serling, a truly great one. Well, that'll do it for this episode. A theme song is Knockers by Cinco, courtesy of Upbeat Music. Hey, before you leave, if you could, please do me just two favors. First of all, if you did enjoy the show, please leave a like on your favorite listening application. And secondly, if you liked what you heard, please spread the word. Love to have some new listeners out there to join you. I'm your host, Richard Wright. Keep your eyes open for the unusual folks, and thanks for stopping by.